Amen. Please take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy today. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to go grab one off of our resource table in the back. We'll be studying 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're uh, taking the summer to preach through this short letter from Paul, which we understand to be the last letter that he wrote before he died. He wrote it from a nasty Roman prison to his younger protege in the gospel ministry named Timothy. We don't know how old Timothy was when he received this, but we do receive indications that he was a younger man and that he needed the encouragement that Paul was providing him, the encouragement to stand strong in the faith, to not waver in his conviction about the power of the gospel to change lives. He was telling Timothy to guard the word despite spiritual opposition and suffering, to faithfully hold fast to the word of God even when there are many adversaries, when there are many enemies lurking around the church and even in the church. So I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-9 through 9 this morning. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people." For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Around the year 2000, the FBI discovered that throughout our country there were multiple Russian spies. They certainly didn't look like Russian spies. They looked like normal American citizens. They lived in normal-looking houses, in normal-looking neighborhoods. They attended some of our country's finest universities like Harvard and Columbia. But even that was so that they would become influential, so they would get to know people in American influence, and then would be able to channel information, confidential information, to Russian authorities. These people would go to Fourth of July parties with their neighbors, would sit at the same ball games that we sit at, but all the while are gathering classified information in an effort to support their government and destroy our own. Unfortunately, this kind of infiltration happens even in churches, even in strong churches, even in churches like our own. But this shouldn't surprise us. Paul told the elders at the church in Ephesus, which is what we believe was the church that Timothy was ministering in, he told them in Acts 20 to beware because there are savage wolves who seek to creep in and destroy the flock of God. And that was why it was so essential for those Ephesian elders to hold fast to the gospel, to be careful of their own souls, for their own souls, and for the souls of those in their own congregations. 
And here Timothy is being charged to watch over the people in his care, in his midst, in the church in Ephesus, because those wolves are still active. They're still prowling and they're still destroying. And we know this is the case in our context as well in the American church today. And so in this this portion of the passage, in this portion of the letter that we read this morning, Paul is encouraging Timothy that the truth will prevail in the face of great adversaries, in the face of great difficulty. And so we, as God's people, then should remain vigilant, aware of the dangers in our midst, aware of the dangers in our own hearts, even, but also remain confident that Satan himself was crushed at the cross and will ultimately be crushed through gospel advance all around the world. And so the obvious question we need to answer right from the get-go, because Paul tells Timothy to specifically understand this, he could have skipped that command, but he was wanting Timothy to be clear on what was happening. The obvious, obvious question would be, when are these last days that Paul is talking about? And secondly, what is it that makes these days difficult? And I'm convinced that these last days are these days. That from the day that Christ came, was born, lived a perfect life, died, rose again, and then the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. That was basically when the last days began. Hebrews 1 says that in these last days, God has revealed himself through his Son. And so we are living in these last days, just as Paul and Timothy were living in the last days. And maybe it sounds a little strange that the last days would be at least 2,000 years long. But there's no time limit here on how long these last days will be. It's just a reminder that, or it's just an indicator that the last days will be difficult. That's what it tells us, not how long or how short they will be, that they will be difficult. But who will they be difficult for? I think it's obvious that Paul is telling Timothy these will be difficult for you. As someone who's seeking to faithfully walk with God, seeking to faithfully proclaim the gospel, someone who's seeking to guard the gospel, to guard the good deposit that he called it back in chapter 1. There will be spiritual opposition and suffering. That's what it means that these last days will be difficult. But who specifically will they be difficult for? For all those who are faithfully seeking to walk with God. And I assume that's you. And if it's not you, then we are so glad you are here. If you're not a Christian and you are just curious what Christians do, what Christians believe, why you see people pull into this parking lot every Sunday, we're delighted that you're here and we are seeking to show you what Christians do. We praise God and we study His Word together and we seek to build ourselves up in the Christian faith. But what it is that makes these days difficult for those of us who would seek to walk with God is this list of 19 nasty attributes that characterize people who oppose true gospel ministry. And these attributes are are listed, I read them in verses 2 through 5. And maybe you read these and say, well, I don't know anybody who struggles with that list. Well, it's obvious you're not alive or breathing or you're not married or you don't have children. Because if you have any of those relationships, then you know people who struggle with this list of sins because you could be honest and you could say, I know I struggle with this list of sins. And you likely know people even in our own uh, families and in our own church family who are struggling with these kinds of sins. We don't have to look very far. And so what it is that makes these days difficult is that 
we have ungodly hearts. And we're surrounded by people who have ungodly hearts. And so, in verses 1 through 5, what makes the context of gospel ministry these last days difficult is that there are even people in the church who are ungodly. Where do you gather, you might ask, that these people are in the church? I do that specifically from verse 5. These are people who have the appearance of godliness. That's one of the characteristics. But what that means specifically, as we kind of jump to the back end of this list, is that they're people who look like Christians. They look like they're godly. They look like they have their act together. They dress nicely. They smile nicely. They even maybe live nicely. But inside, their hearts are very ungodly places. Very nasty places. And specifically, they're nasty because... They love themselves more than they love God. They love themselves more than they love their neighbor. That's specifically where Paul starts this list off in verse 2. People will be lovers of self. And if you just stop there, you realize that everything after this, the other 18 attributes of the ungodly people who even make their living in a church, The other 18 attributes are all explanations of and flowing from the fact that they love themselves more than anybody else. We are often deceived by our culture into thinking that our number one job is to love ourselves. We talked in Sunday school. We absolutely need to be able to take care of our own spiritual needs before we can help somebody else with their spiritual needs. Just like when you're on an airplane, that's what we talked about. You need to take care of your own physical needs if you have to put the oxygen mask on before you can help somebody else with their physical needs. So we need to understand that. Okay, You can't help somebody if you aren't strong yourself. But the world tells us, and takes that one step further by saying you actually need to love yourself more than anyone else. Let me tell you, the Bible doesn't ever command us to do that because it assumes we already do that. And it tells us to repent of that and to love our neighbors then as ourselves. The way that we take great concern and care for ourselves is the way that we're supposed to selflessly, humbly lay down our lives for other people. And so, all of these other attributes here are explanations of what it means to love ourselves more than anybody else. This isn't a command to do that. It's an observation that we already do that, already love ourselves. And so those who love themselves then demonstrate that by being covetous. That would be a word we could use for being a lover of money, someone who is concerned with making sure there's always security by having a certain number of zeros after the amount in your bank account. This kind of love for self evidences itself through proud words and proud attitudes, maybe even by the way you walk or the way you, uh, the way you carry yourself. This love of self demonstrates itself in the words we use. We're abusive toward other people. Right in the middle of the list is this word slanderous, which is the word diabolical, which means you're acting like Satan himself would act when you use this kind of slanderous speech. You're speaking in deadly ways toward other people. You know, the Proverbs tell us that we are to speak words that give life rather than words that bring death. Paul tells us we are to carry ourselves with the aroma of life so that those who are, uh, are seeking to be encouraged in the gospel can smell the fact that we are Christians the way, the way we live. But it also tells us that to those who are dead, we are carrying the aroma of death. We're actually... Uh, 
you know, in a sense, we're, we're, we smell disgusting to an unbeliever. But Paul tells us that we are to carry the, the, the aroma of life to life and death to, that, to death. But we are to speak words of life specifically here rather than uh, words that are slanderous. I'm not going to go through every single one of these words, but I think you can gather some themes here. One is that you have people who are supposed to be humble, and instead they're proud, arrogant, and swollen with conceit there in verse 4. That's not a very good-sounding term. And what was remarkable to me as I studied this list this week was how many of these attributes are the exact opposite attributes that Paul listed in 1 Timothy of what it means to be a church leader, what it looks like to be an elder or a deacon. And you have these lists of godly characteristics that are supposed to exemplify someone's life, and instead here he's, he's giving the opposite list. So, for instance, I thought this one was particularly uh, interesting. In 1 Timothy 3, 6, he says that an elder must be someone who is not a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. And here he's saying that there are people in the church who are swollen or puffed up with conceit. He says that elders are people who are to be above reproach, the husband of one wife sober-minded, that just means self-controlled, and then he goes on to to self-controlled, respectable, which is the opposite of so many of these, being abusive or unappeasable or slanderous or treacherous or reckless. A godly man who is an elder in a church is to be one who is characterized by humility, by self-control, by love for other people, by not being quarrelsome and not a lover of money. And here he's saying, The opposite is happening. Our churches are filled with people who are ungodly and marked by the appearance of ungodliness rather than the appearance of godliness, by true godliness. So there are a couple applications. For one, I would ask you to pray for us as elders, for Clayton and me specifically as elders, as we lead our congregation, that we would be marked by the 1 Timothy 3 list rather than by the 2 Timothy 3 list. That we would be people who are not marked by pride and arrogance and conceit, but that we would be humble men who are selfless, who lay down our lives for our wives, for our children, and for you, and for our community. Also, I would ask you to pray that the Lord would give us more brothers to serve as elders and deacons in our congregation. Perhaps as you look at this list, you are struck by how many of these might characterize you at various times in your life, and maybe even right now. Would you say that these this list characterizes only other people or that you can see yourself kind of looking in the mirror in this passage in verses 2 through 5. And if you do examine your own heart, as I encourage you to do as you look at this list, I would then encourage you not just to stop at examining your heart as Dave led us to do in our prayer of confession this morning, but then to go a step further and throw yourself on the mercy of God and give great gratitude for the fact that even though these are the characteristics that characterize unbelievers and even us as Christians to some degree or another, it is these kinds of people that Jesus died to save. He didn't die to save people who have their lives together, who have their act together. He's transforming us into the kinds of people who are marked by the 1 Timothy 3 list rather than the 2 Timothy 3 list. And I think we can be honest to say that the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian when we look at this list is really just a matter of degree and a matter of stance toward them, right? An unbeliever is going to look at these and say, well, that's what everybody is like. But a Christian should look at these and mourn them and say, this is not what I want to be characterized by. Lord, 
give me the grace of repentance that we talked about in 2 Timothy 3, where we see that repentance is a gift. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So the context of gospel ministry is we're ministering in a place where people, even in the church, are ungodly. It would be pointless just to say the people out there are like this. We need to examine our own hearts and our own congregation uh, at large and say, Lord, we do not want to be characterized in these ways. But because we see ourselves reflected in this list, ministry is very difficult. Marriage is very difficult. Child-rearing is very difficult. And caring for one another, as we talked about in our Bible study this morning, is very difficult because we are typically more characterized by being people without self-control, people who love ourselves and love money, rather than people who are generous and are looking for ways to serve others. Recently, a, a pastor was speaking at a large congregation, a large gathering of other Christians, and went on and on for about five or six minutes talking about how great he was. And didn't really say anything about, this is what God has accomplished. It was, this is what I have done. Look at the number of churches I've started. Look at the size of these churches. Look at the number of people I've baptized. Look at the number of seminary students I've trained. And he went on and on in the first person singular. What he was, was showing that he was a man who was in that moment at least characterized by being swollen with conceit rather than walking in humility and being above reproach. And what I'm asking you, church, is to examine your own heart, but also to hold us as elders accountable, that we would be godly, humble brothers in your midst. So in verses 1 through 5, ministry is difficult because even people in the church are ungodly in these 19 attributes. And secondly, because false teachers seek to destroy the vulnerable. False teachers seek to destroy the vulnerable. This is in verses 6 through 9. What does Paul tell us about these false teachers? He gives four characteristics of these false teachers in terms of what they do. I think verses uh, 2 through 5 are particularly describing these false teachers, but I don't want us to miss that we have these evidences in our own hearts as well. But verses 6 through 9 are specifically talking about these false teachers and what they do. And in verse 6, they creep in. They creep in. Among them, among these people who live in this way, are those who creep into households and capture weak women who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What that means is that they creep in, maybe your translation says they worm their way in, and that's a very picturesque way of describing what they do because they're not coming in and making themselves known. I'm a false teacher, it's on my shirt, and I want you to rebuke me. They're coming in and just sneaking their way in to a congregation, and they wreak havoc there. I recently read a horrifying description of uh, a, a boy who's the, the, the subtitle of this book was that his boyhood was stolen. And what he was describing was the way that a, a particular person of influence in his life destroyed his life by taking advantage of him as a vulnerable person. But what, came, what he came to realize as he became older, older in his teenage years, in his college years, and even as an adult, was that this person didn't just stop with him. He went all 
over his life looking for vulnerable people. And that is what Paul is describing here when he talks about these who creep into households and they capture weak women. And maybe, before you start throwing tomatoes at me and say, you sexist person preaching this passage, or Paul was sexist by writing this passage, let's just pause and do a couple of things here. One is remind ourselves that Paul talked very positively about women back in in 2 Timothy 1, talking about Lois and Eunice. Secondly, he's talking about the ugliness of false teachers who are men. So this isn't exactly holding men up in a positive light here. And third, he's not saying anything about women categorically. He's stating a historical fact about what was happening in this particular church at this particular time, but particularly what they were doing was finding people who were vulnerable. Maybe they were vulnerable because from 1 Timothy 5, these were, there were a number of young widows in this congregation, and they didn't have anyone to help watch their heart and help encourage them in walking with Christ for the long haul. And so he describes these women who are attacked by, heartlessly and ruthlessly by these false teachers as being weak. They're, they're also burdened with sins. What that sounds like is that they're constantly reminded of how guilty they are, but they're not reminded of the grace in Christ. And this is why at the end of our prayer of confession, we don't just say, yep, we're pretty bad. We then go on to say, and look at the grace of Christ in Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4-7 today. Look at how wonderful Christ is. Not just at how guilty you are. Yes, we need to be reminded of our guilt. But what these people were doing was telling weak women, people who were vulnerable in other words, that they were guilty. And see, you're terrible. You're good for nothing. And Paul's saying, no. Let me give you gospel freedom. It's that Christ forgives sinners. It's that you can have a clear conscience. And perhaps you don't know that gift of a clear conscience. And we want to encourage you to pursue a clear conscience. And maybe what that means is you need to confess your sin. Maybe what that means is you need to develop your conscience in some way by educating it with Scripture or even perhaps by information outside of Scripture in some cases. And if you have questions about what that means, I would love to explain that, what, what it would look like to educate your conscience in those ways. But again, if you are here and your conscience, male or female, your conscience is weighed down by your sin, we want to encourage you to throw yourself on Christ and recognize that He has graciously given Himself for your conscience, for you to have a clear conscience, which is a gift that all of us want to have. Have you ever noticed when, when you tell somebody the truth about what they have said and what they've done, how their face, perhaps they blush and they look down. They can't even make eye contact because they're so weighed down by their sin. The gospel clears your conscience, and it is wonderful and joyful to have a clear conscience. These women are led astray by various passions. It doesn't describe what those are, but simply states this as a fact that they are being cast aside, cast around, unable to steady themselves, spiritually speaking. That they're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Maybe this means that they're kind of grasping for a new fad. Kind of where Paul says in Ephesians 4 that people are cast about with every wave of doctrine. Oh, this Instagram post tells me that this is true, and this one tells me that this is true, and this glossy ad that came in the mail this week tells me that this is true, and this... 
internet flashing ad banner ad is telling you that this is true and you're not sure what to believe and so you're kind of cast all over being led astray by various passions, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I wish I knew what was true, but there's all these competing voices. This is why we have pastors. This is why we have people who lead Bible studies, so that you can have your truth, your heart rooted in truth, I should say. So these false teachers creep in. Secondly, they capture, and that's not that they're taking you by handcuffs, it's that they're spiritually capturing your imagination by what could be true or uh, various things that you could believe that you've never heard before. Oh, well, this, this is so good. I should, I should read more about this. Well, if it's not related to the gospel, no, you shouldn't. If it's some fancy new interpretation, no, you shouldn't. If no one in church history has ever read the Bible that way before, you probably shouldn't start reading the Bible that way. But these false teachers capture people and it wreaks havoc. At our church in Alabama, this, was, this preceded me, so we moved there in 2014, but about in 1998 or 1996, right around there, uh, the senior pastor that I served alongside of there had his first Sunday there. He had gone through the process, was, was hired there, was joyfully installed, and he had his first Sunday where he was going to preach. And his first Sunday in ministry at this church in Anniston, Alabama, he went and he sat in the adult Sunday school classroom. And the person who was teaching the adult Sunday school classroom started saying something that was blatant heresy. And on his first Sunday in ministry there, Bob had to stop the class and say, I don't know how long he's been teaching this, but he's wrong. And he's looking right up at him. He was teaching the class saying, you can't be teaching this. And so I think Bob finished that class out and then they had a conversation that week and he started teaching again the next week. The, the, the original Sunday school teacher started teaching again. Same thing happened over and over again. And eventually... It got to the point where they had to remove him from the church, which we'll come back to in verse 5 in a minute here, is what Paul tells you to do in a situation like this. And now that man who was teaching that Sunday school class doesn't even call himself a Christian anymore. He had wormed his way in, and he was capturing people's imagination with false teaching. And this is what happens, and this is why we have this passage, why we need this passage of Scripture. Because false teachers creep in, they capture people, and they oppose the truth. This is what's described in verse 8. And maybe you read verse 8 and you say, who in the world is this Janus and Jambres guy? Let me get out my concordance and see where else they're mentioned in the Bible. And the thing is, their names are nowhere else in the Bible. So good luck with that. But Michael read a passage this morning that was describing Janus and Jambres. Church history, church tradition tells us that the names of Pharaoh's magicians who were trying to turn their rod into a snake and who were unable to create gnats, unlike Moses and Aaron, and so on, their names were Janus and Jambres. And these were the magicians who opposed Moses and made it difficult for God's people. But what happened to Janus and Jambres? They lost, they failed. And this verse is intended to encourage you that those who oppose the truth will fail, will lose, because they are on the losing side. And so we rejoice in that truth, but we have to be aware that they are still working their trade today. They will not get very far, these false teachers, because their folly will be plain to all. 
So the third thing these, these, three, uh, these, these false teachers, I should say, do is that they oppose the truth. But the fourth, the most encouraging part about them, is in verse 9, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. In other words, the fourth characteristic of false teachers is that they fail. It's that they lose. It's that they are squashed by the truth. And we celebrate that. That should give us courage. That should give us confidence that when we hold up the truth of the Word of God, it will succeed. It will not return void. But maybe there are people who would call themselves Christians, who would have the appearance of godliness. And basically what that's describing is an actor. Someone who puts on a mask, someone maybe who even puts on a uniform and acts the part. But then, maybe like in a children's cartoon, the, the, the paint kind of starts to wash off their face. Kind of like in 101 Dalmatians, where the dogs had rolled around in the soot to make them look like they were black, and then they ran outside and the snow starts to melt on them and it reveals them for who they really are underneath. And this happens to false teachers. And what's really there begins to be exposed and you have to address it. How does Paul tell Timothy to address when you have somebody in your midst who is calling themselves a Christian but is not living like it? Or who is calling themselves a teacher of the truth and is actually teaching error? What are you supposed to do? Verse 5 Avoid such people. That is really strong language. And it's what the Bible talks about in other passages like Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Thessalonians 3. And we could keep listing other passages when you have somebody who calls himself or herself a Christian and does not live like a Christian or teach like a Christian, whichever of those two categories we're dealing with, you avoid such people. That's what this passage is describing is you don't allow those people to be members of your church because they are worming their way in so they can destroy you. And maybe this happens blatantly by them teaching a Sunday school class in Anniston, Alabama. Or maybe they do this subtly by living an unholy life in Chicago. But whatever the case may be, Paul says, avoid such people. And that's not out of, love for, uh, out of hatred for them. It's out of love for them. And love for the broader flock, which is why Paul said in Acts 20 to beware of those wolves who come in in sheep's clothing. You need to know who they really are so that they don't wreak havoc in your midst. We're talking in this sermon about what the context of gospel ministry is. And we're saying it's difficult to preach the gospel. It's difficult to live the Christian life it's difficult to be a healthy church because even people in the church are ungodly, yet they have the appearance of godliness. They look like they're Christians, but they're actually not. It's a fraud. And it's difficult to minister in these last days, to preach the gospel, to live the Christian life, to be a healthy church in these last days because false teachers seek to destroy those who are vulnerable. Maybe you recognize vulnerabilities in your own heart. The way to defend yourself to keep yourself from being attacked is to study the Bible really carefully. And maybe you need somebody else to help you do that. Maybe you need a good book to help you do that that will guide you to the truth. There's plenty out there, and I have hundreds of more. I know that surprises you. Hundreds of more recommendations of books to help you defend yourself, 
So you won't be one of these vulnerable people who will be easily attacked when people worm their way into our congregation, into the American church. This passage calls us to be confident and to be vigilant. We need to be confident because we see false teachers are going to lose. The truth will prevail. That should bolster our hope and our joy in the Lord, but we're not there yet. We haven't completely won. We're not at the last day, the day when Christ returns. We're in the last days which are difficult, which are fraught with people who are swollen with conceit and the description back in the early part of this text. So yes, the truth will prevail. And so yes, we should be confident, but we should also be vigilant. Vigilant of our own hearts, vigilant for our loved ones, vigilant for our church family, and prayerfully asking that the Lord would restrain the evil one and guard our hearts and guard our congregation. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray that we as a congregation would indeed carefully guard the truth so that like those Russian spies who seek to live the normal American life so that they can destroy America, help us to guard the truth so that those who would seek to guard, to destroy the church from the inside would have no ability to do that, would have no platform to do that. pray that you would make us people who are marked with godliness, who rejoice in the power of the gospel to transform us from people who once loved ourselves more than anyone else to be in people who love what is good and love you and love neighbor. You transform us to be people who once were covetous and now being people who freely give and are generous. You took people who once were proud and swollen with conceit and made us people who are marked by humility and joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.